Uh, my name is Joel, Joel Barker, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, for those of you that are guests with us or haven't been with us for a while, um, our senior pastor is on medical leave, and so continue. Church, please pray for their family uh, as we are seeing hopeful signs, things that we're encouraged by, but it's still a long road. It's going to be a long road. And so today I get the privilege to preach to you. We're going through Galatians, so if you have your Bibles, please open to Galatians. We're still in chapter 1, and I'll begin at a verse 11, even though Esteban has already preached on it. Galatians 1 Verse 11 says, For I would have you know, this is Paul speaking, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism, beyond many of my own age, among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the tra traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus." Okay, we're going to focus on verse 15 here. Verse 15 says, But when he, that's God, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Our youth group started uh, going, we did like a question and answer time this past week. We're going to continue to go through it. This isn't a new idea. Lots of youth groups have done that before. We've done it before about a year and a half ago with the youth group. And can you think of the question that always comes up anytime you ask a youth group to submit questions for Q&A? You just think for a moment, what's the question that's going to come up? And it always does. The question is some form of, does free will exist? What does predestination mean? What does it mean to be chosen by God before the foundations of the earth? Do I have the option to choose God or not? Maybe you've talked about religion with a friend or family member and that idea was brought up. It's really unavoidable because the word predestination, I'll read it in a second, it's, it's right in scripture multiple times. And so you read your Bible or you go to church for a while and you're bound to run into the word predestination and so you inevitably have to ask the question, well, what does that mean? Well, we're going to spend the next two weeks talking about the doctrine of predestination. I'm not going to give a huge argument for it or, or what it means today. You guys can have fun and debate it over lunch. And if you have family members or friends in town that are here, I just made your lunch spicier and you're welcome. Pretty much everybody here, if you, at least if you've been a Christian for a while, you've given some thoughts, maybe more than others, some more than others, of what does predestination mean? 
I remember when I was a freshman in college, and I started to really wrestle with this, and I'd given it some thought in high school and middle school. You know, I just remember thinking, no way God would ever do that, because that's not fair. That's what I would say in high school. And I, but I started to wrestle with it more as I was listening to men preach in college. And I was helped by many faithful pastors over the years. Probably the two most helpful to me over the years were John Piper and, and R.C. Sproul. And uh, I had heard both of them preach on it. And they were two men that made me start thinking about it. But almost all of us have thought about this question at some level. And the question is good because virtually every theologian deals with it because they have to. It's unavoidable. If you take the scripture seriously, then you're going to have to deal with what does the scripture mean when Paul says what I just read in Galatians, that God had set, a, set him apart before he was born and called him by his grace. Listen to these words from Ephesians. So that was Galatians. This is Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 3 and 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Continues in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Every Christian who takes the Bible seriously has to deal with this word. Now obviously, not all Christians have agreed throughout history of what does this mean. You've likely found this out if you've ever talked about it with friends. Josh Creasy in college probably debated everybody at Ball State and found this out. And so I hope over the next two weeks to give an overview of this doctrine. And sometimes this doctrine can lead to pretty heated debates. There's a chance that some of you might strongly disagree with what our pastors believe. And so I'm going to make a plea to you before we even get started to work through this subject. I would say please give an extra amount of grace and charity regarding this doctrine. It's very important. It's a very dense subject. Be patient with one another. Be patient with me over the next two weeks as we discuss this. When you discuss it with your friends over lunch, be patient with one another and be charitable. Young men especially tend to be brash about this topic, so we resist that urge. This takes time, and no one comes to their understanding of what this word means, regardless of what side you are on in one week. Over the years, we've had men come to our church, and they, they're trying to understand what our church believes, what we think, who we are. And inevitably, one of the questions that they ask is, are you guys Calvinist? They might say. Are you guys Reformed? Do you believe in predestination? Now, I like that one the best, because they're asking a yes or no question, do I believe in predestination? Yes, I do, or no, I don't. But the reality is that question isn't really a yes or no question. Because different traditions and different denominations, they all have their interpretation of what that doctrine means. Catholics have their 
definition of predestination. Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans. And I would argue that any serious Christian, everybody, every Christian believes in predestination. You just mean maybe something different than the person next to you means. So the question the guest is really asking isn't do you believe in predestination, but rather what do you think predestination means in Scripture? Now, I almost always know that what they're asking is, do I believe the Reformed version of predestination? Do I believe uh, what Calvin believed about predestination, what Luther believed about predestination? That's what they're wanting to know. But every Christian believes this doctrine. They just mean different things about it. Every Christian believes it because it's impossible to read Ephesians. You have to just say, well, I don't think Ephesians is true, to say I don't believe in predestination. Paul literally says he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So you can't read that and just say, I think that sentence right there is wrong. You just have to make a decision. What does that mean? And so my aim for us over the next two weeks is what does the Bible, what does the Bible mean when it says that God predestined us for adoption? And it's kind of funny that people call it Calvinism because... Calvin was by no means the first person to talk about this. Luther talked about it before him, and many others before him. So to simplify this for us, I believe most people would agree that whatever definition you kind of come to, there's, there's kind of three categories that you can fit into, okay? Many men over the years have written on this topic. They've debated it. But there's really kind of three main views. And obviously, within those three main views, there's some distinctions about particulars, but there's three main categories. And these are Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and Augustine, Augustinianism. I'm going to have my mouth full saying these words all day. Now, I'm not going to go, and I don't have the time to talk through the history of all that, but you've most likely heard of Augustine or Augustine, if you're a snob and you care about that? I'm going to probably go back and forth between that. I'm already sorry. <laughs> Augustine debated a man named Pelagius. Pelagius, he was a monk, and they debated primarily on the idea of original sin and how necessary was the grace of God for human salvation. That's what they were debating in the 5th century. Augustine argued that, excuse me, let me start back. Pelagius argued that the grace of God assists or can help humans to know how to live godly lives. But humans in and of themselves are capable and they're able on their own to follow God's commands if they choose to do so. He didn't believe in original sin, so he didn't believe that Adam's sin was in any way passed down to the rest of the human race. And therefore, you weren't really connected to Adam, and you had the ability, in and of yourself, to choose to obey God, choose to try to please God, without the need of divine grace. Okay? Augustine argued that Adam's sin, he believed in an original sin, Adam's sin affected all of mankind. So we're all born in sin. 
You've heard us say that. And therefore man is absolutely dependent on the grace of God for their salvation from sin. Now I believe Pelagianism is not an option for Christians. It's not a Christian option. It's an unchristian position. We may debate what predestination is, and we will here in a moment, but Pelagianism goes too far. It says that humans can, without God's grace at all, choose to obey God and please God. They don't need God's grace at all. It can be helpful, but it's not necessary. That's Pelagianism. Now, debates between semi-Pelagianism and Augustinianism, those debates can happen under the umbrella of Christian faith. Okay? But Pelagianism, that's outside the walls of Christianity to say that we don't need God's grace. There's really no way for argument. That's not just something that I've decided. That's been decided by church councils. You can read about it. They excommunicated Pelagius. This has been decided for centuries now. Now, semi-Pelagianism says that God's grace is required for salvation. So man cannot be saved apart from God's grace. But there's something that man must do to cooperate even in his fallen state, he must cooperate with God's grace in order for God to save him. Now, that might be confusing. I'm going to keep trying to still down. So, semi-Pelagianism says that man cannot be saved apart from God's grace. Okay? But man must decide if they're going to choose to cooperate with God's grace or reject God's grace. And based upon their decision, that is the deciding point as to whether that person will be saved or whether that person will not be saved. So the Augustinian view is that man is so totally depraved, he's so fallen, that Adam's sin permeates so much of them, so much of their life, that he is 100% totally dependent on God's grace, even for his initial response to the gospel. Even to say yes to the gospel, he is dependent on God's grace. So the very decision to believe the gospel, he needs God's grace for. And so you might be thinking that's still a little confusing. But it comes down to man's ability. What is man's ability to respond to the gospel? Does man, in his fallen state, have the ability to hear the gospel preached and for himself decide that he will accept the gospel, that he will send to the gospel? Or is even his ability to decide yes or no totally dependent on God's grace? And that's what most of us are debating when we're debating it with our friends and family. We all, I think, would agree that we need God's grace. It's just to what extent is it necessary? Now, remember, I'm only discussing for these next two weeks predestination in regards to our salvation. I'm not talking today about did God make you sit in that seat or you sit in that seat or you wear that shirt. Those are good questions. That's God's providence, okay? Predestination has to do with God's involvement with our final destination. How much is God responsible for our destination is the question. Now, before we go any farther, most of you that have been here for a long time, you know that your pastors hold to the Augustinian view of predestination. And so that's what I'm going to argue for as we continue. 
And I realize that there are some of you in this room who disagree with that. And while I'm going to try to persuade you and convince you over the next two weeks why the Augustinian view is actually the biblical view, I don't believe that a church has to be divided on this topic. Okay? So I believe you can still exist in our church. You can be pleasing to God. There are some wonderful men throughout history who have been on the other side of the debate who we will be with in heaven and that we love and appreciate dearly. Okay? Now, both semi-Pelagianism and Augustinianism, they believe that predestination is something that God does. Okay, that might be strange to you or sound weird. Both believe in predestination. Both of them do. They just mean different things by it. Both sides of this debate believe that God does, in fact, choose you before the foundations of the earth. Right? That's right in Scripture. No faithful semi-Pelagianism or Pelagian or Augustinian disagrees that God chooses before the foundation who will be saved. So you're still thinking, well, then what's the difference? Well, the difference of the debate comes down to around this question. On what basis did God make the decision to save you before the foundation of the, earth, of the world? On what basis did he make that? Did God save you before the foundations of the world because God is all-knowing and so therefore he could look through time and he could see how you were going to respond to the gospel when you responded to the gospel. He could see that one day you were going to hear the gospel preached and you were going to accept the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ and because God could see that out in the future, he chose you before the foundations of the earth. That's what semi-Pelagianism would argue. But he chose you on his prior knowledge to what you were going to decide. So it was still your decision. He saw what you were going to decide, so therefore he chose you before he even made the earth. The Augustinian view, though we would believe that God does know everything, he knows what's going to happen. His decision to choose you before the foundations of the world had absolutely nothing to do with what you would decide to do in the future. His decision to choose you is solely because it pleased him to choose you to be saved according to the good counsel of his will. God's decision to choose you had absolutely nothing to do with what, may, what you may or may not do in the future. And that's what the debate boils down to. Okay? I'm not going to give you a full argument today. You're going to have to come back next week, but I'm going to try to set the stage for this. Okay? So with that in mind, let's keep going. Both sides of this debate... Believe in predestination. Both believe that God chooses you before the foundations of the earth. Both believe that God is sovereign. Now again, what that means, that God is sovereign, is debated. Someone like John Wesley or Billy Graham, they believe God is sovereign. They would be on the semi-Pelagian side. Martin Luther, John Calvin, they believe God is sovereign. They're on the other side. But they mean different things by what it means for God to be sovereign. God is sovereign over everything. There's lots of nuance. We could spend a whole sermon on God's sovereignty, but I'm going to try to make it as simple as it can. God is in control. If something happens in this world, no matter what caused it, whether it was something that man did, whether it was nature, 
whether it was something that man made. Anything and everything that happens in this world, God has the authority over it. He has the authority and the power to at least stop it if he wanted to. If God does not prevent something from happening, that means at the very least, he has chosen to allow that thing to happen. It doesn't mean that God supports it. It doesn't mean that God's in favor of it. It doesn't mean that it pleases God. But he's made the choice, because he is sovereign, to allow it to happen. And he's made that choice sovereignly. He had the power to stop it or change it. He knew it was going to happen. He wasn't surprised by it. But in his sovereignty and in his authority, he has allowed it to happen. Now, R.C. Sproul, he has this concept that he calls the maverick molecule. He says if there's one molecule running loose outside of God's control, so one single molecule somewhere in this world that's outside of God's control, outside of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that any future promise that God has made will come to pass. Because that molecule could wreck the whole plan because it's not under God's control. So maybe God has a plan, but then this molecule comes in and just wrecks everything that he, had, that he intended to do. And if God isn't in control of everything, he's not sovereign. If he's not sovereign, he's not God. Now, an atheist at this point would, would mock me, and he would say, well, if God has the ability to stop something from happening and he allows it to happen, then he's not a good God. If God had the ability to stop someone who was going to perish in hell and do evil things in this world, then why would he even allow that person to ever be born? How can a good God who is sovereign and in control allow evil things to happen? Well, let's step back for a second and let's think about this. Remember, both sides of the debate think that God is sovereign. Both sides of the debate believe that man is fallen, that Adam's sin did something, it cursed us in some way. But now we're discussing how does God relate to, to a sinful, fallen world? How does he relate to a sinful, fallen world? A world where men, all men have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. No one is good, no, not one, Scripture says. So how, how could a sovereign God relate to a, to a fallen world? Well, there's, there's multiple possibilities, and, and theologians have kind of talked about this, but how could God, let's think for a minute, how could God, if he had decided, he could do anything? The reality is there's a fallen world, there's sinful man. What are the potential options that God could have done as he relates to a fallen world? Well, number one, he could offer no opportunity for anybody to be saved. Okay, That's the first option he could have done. God is just and he's holy. And because he is holy and we are not, and because he is just, he is in, he's in no way obligated required, he's no way obligated or required to love or help 
a rebellious people, a fallen world. God gave conditions. We broke them. And so therefore, he is under no obligation to save anyone. And he would be well within his rights to offer no opportunity for anyone to be saved. If God decided to let sinful man, all of us, be lost to sin, he would still be good, and he would be just, and he would be holy. We sinned against our creator. He's the creator. And we have no right to say that he must save some or he must save all. He could have done that. Okay, number two. God could give the opportunity for everyone to be saved or for some to be saved. He could at least give the opportunity for some to be saved. There's no guarantee that people would be saved. There's no guarantee that all would be saved. But there's at least maybe the opportunity that some could be saved from their sin. That's another possibility that he could have done. Number three, God could ensure the salvation of everybody. Right? If he wanted to, he could have made it so everybody's saved. God in his sovereignty could intrude into the human situation and not just provide the opportunity, but ensure the salvation for everyone. He has every right to do that if he would want to do that, if he, that's how he designed the world. He could, direct and he, could, he could direct and guide the steps of a person and the heart of a person to make sure and to ensure that they come to saving faith in Christ Jesus. Now remember, the point is not right now which one is most correct. The point is these are possible options that God could have done. So I'm just asking you, could God have done these options? Would he, in his sovereignty, have the ability and the right to do those things if he wanted to? He could have designed the world that way. That's, could, that's how he could relate to his fallen man. Number four, God could ensure the salvation of some. So this is, this is different than three. Okay? Number three is universalism. Everybody's saved. All right? That's a heresy. That's not the Christian view, but that's what universalism is. Everybody's saved. Number four, God could ensure the salvation of some. So maybe he works, he does work in the lives of some to direct their steps and lead their hearts to ensure that they come to salvation, but he doesn't do that for everyone. God could do that as well. That's another possibility of how God could interact with a fallen world. All those are potential options that God could have chosen to do. Now, I think all of us would agree that the, the Bible does make it clear that he does offer a possibility for men to be saved. So right off the bat, we know that number one is not true. So we can get rid of number one. Okay? Now what about number three? God, has God promised that everybody would be saved? No, he has not. Does the Bible teach that? No, it does not. Okay? So number one, not true. Number three, also not true. So that leaves us with number two or four. Now, both sides of, these, of this debate believe that not all will be saved, okay? Semi-Pelagianism and Augustinianism both believe that not everybody's going to be saved. And so the two options for us left to consider, 
of what the Bible teaches is either that God gives the opportunity for all, or at least some, to be saved, or God doesn't just provide the opportunity, but he actually steps in and he ensures that some will be saved. That's the Augustinian view. Now, what is the most common pushback against the Augustinian view? Think about that for a second. The idea that God chooses some, but not all, to be saved. What is the pushback? What is the critique? The biggest pushback is, well, that's not fair. That doesn't seem fair. If God is going to ensure to choose some and ensure that some are being saved, he should do it for all. Why wouldn't he do it for all? If he's going to, just, if he's going to choose some, why wouldn't he just do it for all? It's not fair. But let's be fair in this debate. The other side has the same issue of fairness. If God could save all people, but he doesn't do it, and instead he only provides the opportunity for people to be saved. Well, that's not fair. Why would he do that if he has the power to save everybody? Both sides have this issue of fairness, but Augustinian view is the one that gets said, well, my God isn't like that, he wouldn't be unfair. But if you hold the other view, it's it can make the argument that it's just as not fair. Why, why are there millions of people who never get, to hear the, never get to hear the gospel? Couldn't God write it in the clouds for those people to hear the gospel? And he could. But he hasn't chosen to do so. And so that, that doesn't seem fair. Now this is an argument, this is not an argument for why number four I believe is correct. But I would actually argue between those two options that number four is, is more gracious. Because instead of just giving you the opportunity for people to decide to be saved, God ensures that some will actually, effectively, be saved. And though I know that opponents would not agree with this statement, I'll actually argue next week too that if you have a correct view of the depravity of man, the fallenness of man, that number two it actually ensures that no one would be saved. But you'll have to wait for that. So number two says that everyone who hears the gospel has the opportunity, but not everybody hears the gospel. And so you say, well, then why, why didn't God save everybody? He could have. Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he write it in the crowds for everybody to have the opportunity? Why doesn't he choose everybody? And the answer is, I don't know. No one knows. I do not know why God has not chosen to save everybody. But we at least can all agree, if you've read your Bible, that not all will be saved. The Bible is clear on that. But remember, because God is sovereign, we know that God doesn't have to save anyone. He could save zero people, and he would still be righteous and acting justly because we've sinned against him. If a judge punishes a murderer, is he being unfair? If God punishes a sinner, 
He is acting with far more justice than any judge on this planet has ever acted with. So you have to remember, first of all, God does not, know, does not owe anybody mercy. He's never obligated to be merciful to anyone. And in fact, he tells us it's his decision if he will be merciful. He says in, to Moses in Exodus, and then he also says it in Romans, when Paul reminds us of what God said to Moses, he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And I remember wrestling with that question in that verse so much in college, thinking through, like, how, does this, how can God say this? This does not seem kind. This does not seem right. But this is what God has said. It is his decision. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, just to end our time, Remember, I'm not really making the argument right now. I'm just trying to set the stage. I remember seeing this sort of diagram that helped me with the fairness question because I just thought it wasn't fair. And you might be thinking, that's not fair. So look at the screen. These X's, these white X's, they represent everybody, all of mankind, okay? Every person up there is a sinner. All have fallen and rebelled against their God. All deserve to be punished. Now the Augustinian view is that God has chosen to save some and he has passed over others. Okay? So the next picture, I don't know if we're going to see the colors. You can kind of see the colors. There's green. Those represent people that God has chosen. And the, X's, the, the orange ones are people that have been passed over not chosen. And so in the Augustinian view, the green group, what did they receive? They received mercy from God. What did the orange group get? Got justice. Who on the screen gets injustice? No one. You either receive mercy from God, which he is under no obligation to do, or you receive justice. God, is, God does not give injustice to anyone. So if God were to give the green X's mercy, and he were to give the orange X's injustice, he would not be righteous and he would not be good, but God doesn't do that. And I'll continue to argue for that next week. God gives mercy or justice. No one has ever received injustice from God. And so next week we'll continue our discussion on the doctrine of predestination and we'll discuss free will. Okay? So let me remind you, maybe you've hated everything I've said so far. Well, I haven't given a full defense, so... Don't make your judgment just based on this sermon. That would be foolishness. Come back next week. But let me remind you, regardless if you agree with me or not, to be gracious to one another and charitable 
with one another as we debate this, okay? Come back next week. We'll continue to look at this, and we'll talk about free will. You guys can go debate it over lunch. But especially if this topic is relatively new for you, you haven't given it much thought, don't jump to any conclusions quickly. Don't jump to the Augustinian view quickly. Don't jump to the other side quickly. You shouldn't make your mind up in one 40-minute sermon on this if this is what you've heard. It's going to take lots of study of God's word over the years, but we'll at least continue it next week. So for now, would you stand with me for prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for truths that are hard, but that are wonderful and beautiful. And I pray that this would set the stage for next week for us to be extremely thankful for your kindness and mercy to us. Father, you have been kind to save the people regardless of what view we're holding to. We have sinned against you, and we have not deserved mercy, and we have received mercy from you. And that is a kindness to us, God, one that we do not deserve and one that we are thankful for and one that we did nothing to gain. Father, thank you that your mercy to us is not dependent on our good works. Thank you that you just decide to be merciful to us and to bless us. Father, we praise you and we ask for help as we continue to Think through these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul.
The Lord bless